Last year, it was just all about finding the balance, finding our headspace, having a much healthier working environment. Um, and this year, our ethos is going to be all about really this this idea of um, of always being in test mode, this idea of always being in beta mode, this idea of trying things new, of giving everybody in, in the agency permission to fail. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders and next level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your hosts, Craig Johns and Ben Gathercole. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, we speak with a passionate woman who loves to inspire people to buy well through inspiring and engaging experiences. She has more than 20 years of experience across Asia, Australia and the UK building interactive and purposeful brand and client relationships with some of the world's largest recognizable brands such as Coca-Cola, Emirates, Nike and Unilever. Creating ideas for moments that matter as Managing Director Singapore of Geometry Global, they inspire action through ideas that are behaviorally inspired and experience led. As a leader, she has guided innovative teams at the Client Relationship Consultancy Group, Fitch, BBDO, Leo Burnett Group, and Team D ANZ, as well as being a board director of Iris Worldwide. Her passionate focus on workplace and personal health and wellness in an industry that is known for unhealthy work habits has paid dividends from a productivity and a quality perspective. I'm honored to have the privilege to present to you a phenomenal leader in the brand transformation space, Jane Perry. Jane, welcome to the show. Hi, Craig. Thank you so much. That's um, an amazing introduction. It's interesting hearing your life career played out through somebody else. So thank you. I appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. And it's been a great journey and I'm looking forward to really delving into that today. Let's take you back in time when you were a child. What was childhood like and what really inspired you? Sure. Um, I, was, I had a, a wonderful childhood, an incredibly playful childhood that was very much inspired by um, the Australian outback. We grew up um, in a very contrary place to that um, in the southeastern suburbs of Melbourne. But my mother and father came from a very small, sleepy town called Renmark. And um, my father was a, a working man from the land and spent his teenage years shearing sheep and traveling across the country. So he really brought that passion to our um, our little humble abode in the southeastern suburbs of Melbourne. So I, I grew up riding dirt bikes from the age of about three or four. Um, I remember having my first Kiwi 50. It was a tiny little little motorbike that I loved to ride up and down the street. But um, I think where I really came into my own was when, when we were on our many camping trips. So every opportunity that my parents had, they would pack my sister and I up into our van with our dirt bikes and our boats and we would, we would head into the bush for several weeks. And um, it, it had a profound impact on my future self. I think it's something that um, I probably didn't learn to appreciate until I was much older in life because the um, the vast, I guess, or the, the big juxtaposition to this passion for the outback and, and dirt bike riding and camping and fishing was the fact that I studied Shiketi Ballet um, quite intensely for, for 12 or 13 years, again, from the age of about four. So my life was very torn as a childhood between being on dirt bikes and fishing and, and dancing in a, a very prominent Melbourne ballet studio. And I think that, um, again, that, that um, understanding of the role that those two very polarizing experiences as a child had on me in my future life, um, I've only just really come to appreciate and come to um, apply in, in certainly in my career, but all of my human interactions with, with my, my friends, my colleagues, my clients, um, and certainly with my family. 
how beautiful there you you know you talk about that juxtaposition where you've got that that outdoors that grit the determination that uncomfortable nature of being on a peewee 50 and 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 riding on the dirt to the beauty and elegance of a ballet dancer yeah yeah i think you put it a lot more eloquently than i did um i'm not sure how how beautiful and elegant i was as a ballet dancer <laughs> i i stuck with it for a very long time um it was it was an experience in itself actually i think the, the for me the the interesting thing that i've learned as an adult between those two um very different parallel lives as a kid was um this um the, this freedom that i felt when i was when i was riding motorbikes you know you mentioned it just now this kind of um being five or six on a little peewee 50 and riding out into the bush and um, in hindsight, it was kind of crazy on my parents' part that it was the 80s, so, so hey, <laughs> different, different then. But um, this freedom that I felt when I was doing this, when, when I was riding my bike and this empowerment that I had, and I had that same feeling when I was dancing on stage or when I was um, during my examination time. Um, but ballet for me was uh, probably even more of a prominent role in my future self and um, in that probably the more negative side of it in that um, I was um, a very different person when I was in the ballet studio than I was at school, for example. Um, my school life was very healthy, very happy. I was very fortunate um, to have a really positive experience in a, um, uh, socially as, as well as um, with, my, with my peers as well as with my teachers, whereas ballet um, was um, incredibly strict. Um, I was after having a 12 or 13 year relationship with the same ballet teacher, I was quite terrified of her, um, which whilst I sort of started this with it being a negative experience, it, it, it was hard at the time. I think those years of um, four or five day a week dancing and the discipline that that took was definitely difficult at the time, but um, it absolutely helped to shape where I am now. And um, so whilst riding dirt bikes was, was very opposite to that. It was also the release and um, uh, the, the place where I got to be free. So obviously you, you, you've got that inspiration or that determination and, and good, really good work ethic from what you did as a child. But when you went to university, yeah. you were a dropout. You know, what was the missing piece <laughs> of the puzzle for you and, and why did tertiary institutions really didn't resonate with you? Yeah, it's such a good question and it's something that I honestly haven't thought about much and the, the term university dropout, you're the first person that's ever called me that and it's, it's something that I'm um, I'm becoming really comfortable with and it's something that I'm almost proud of now and, um, you know, just recently uh, Facebook globally changed their recruitment policies from um, requesting that every single individual have a degree, which in hindsight was kind of strange given Mark Zuckerberg's university dropout too. But um, for me, when I read that, I had this real sort of validation of um, we're moving into an era where it's okay. It's okay to be a university dropout. Um, so for me, um, I certainly didn't feel that the tertiary environment failed me in any way. Um, there were a lot of reasons why I chose to step out of um, tertiary education. I think um, academically, I, I always struggled. So even in high school, whilst I had so many happy years there, um, my high school experience was very much shaped around the social interactions I had with my teachers and my friends and my peers. And I took every opportunity I could to put my hand up for any extracurricular activity. So I was very busy um, running the debating team or coaching sports teams, doing anything I could to take me out of the classroom where I, I did struggle. And um, I think that I, I had a similar experience with university in that respect. I loved the environment. Um, I was really inspired by my lecturers but um, found it very difficult to, to sort of sit down and put pen to paper. And, you know, I, when I was at university as well, we were still kind of um, – it was still very much a, a listen and, and learn environment. It wasn't necessarily as engaging as the uh, educational forums are now. We didn't have as much um, uh, a digital um, uh, options available to us, digital tools, digital way of learning. We didn't have access. You know, the internet was just 
kind of starting when I was at university. So um, it was quite different then. And I think that um, the the academic process of sitting in a lecture hall, listening, taking notes, and then regurgitating that back through assignments just wasn't my jam. Um, and at a, around that point, I was approached um, to join a very small independent agent, marketing agency in Melbourne through the university. It was actually one of my lecturers that encouraged me. He said, you know, this is a great role. Um, and, you know, if you're struggling with the coursework, then maybe you should consider um, jumping at this. And I was really hungry to work. I've always worked from, you know, the age of 14 and nine months, which is the legal age in Australia. I've always had multiple jobs. Um, I always really enjoyed working. And um, so I jumped at that opportunity just shy of graduating from university. Okay, so I love it. So, you know, you hear you're talking about your learning, kind of learning on the job and you just like to get your hands amongst it. So you're a real tactile and kinesthetic kind of learner or, or person. Yeah. I find this quite ironic because we'll fast forward a few years and you end up landing in a job as a university lecturer in Cambodia. How did that come about? Yeah. Um, that was, you know, the, the, my whole life probably before, up until the point at which I had children because now things are just chaotic with with them but prior to that I've always really yearned for the next big challenge you really yearned for something new um, really yearned to shake things up and and that's really come about in my um, in in the, the amount of countries that I have lived in and, and traveled to um, the amount of different roles that I've had in my life Cambodia um, there was it was a point in my life where I was in a fantastic job I had a wonderful relationship I was um, very settled and very comfortable, but I was young and I was hungry for something else. And there was this yearning that um, I really wanted to be abroad and I wanted to do some volunteer work for a while. And the irony at that time was that um, I struggled to find anything I could do for a substantial amount of time. You know, I didn't want to go off for a few weeks. I really wanted to take myself out of Melbourne. I wanted to take myself out of advertising agencies and um, and put myself into a new experience. And so... I managed to find a fantastic NGO in Australia that um, that runs a university in Cambodia. What I learned um, about education in Cambodia is that um, there are a lot of kids that graduate top of their class from high school and then they have no options because they can't afford to go to the capital, to, to the, the city of Phnom Penh and to pay for their university degree. So this Australian NGO had set up a entirely... Um, free and scholarship-based university. There was about 2,000 students there. And um, and I just sort of started engaging with them in Melbourne. And then I was asked one day if I knew anyone who would be interested to go and lecture marketing. And as to your point, um, to go and lecture marketing to 40 university students as a university dropout um, was, was interesting and something that I had to kind of get my head around. Um, but I ended up there uh, and I was there for a year. I lived in a very small province um, on the border of Vietnam. It's about a, a hundred k's out of uh, Phnom Penh, but it took about six or seven hours to get there on a little a little chicken bus. Um, and I lived there with no electricity and no running water. We welled our water every morning um, for a year and I wrote the syllabus for these students um, and helped with their work placements at the end when they graduated. And it was um, it was by far the most rewarding thing and the best thing that I have ever done in my life. Such a humbling experience and obviously it's shaped your career from then where you, you're you not afraid now to, to really spread those wings and explore new opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. It, it really shaped me in ways that I couldn't imagine at the time. Um, I was really lucky that when I resigned from my agency to go and have the experience in Cambodia that I um, had a retained a fantastic relationship with that company and they um, invited me to join their Malaysia office on, on return from Cambodia. So I moved from Cambodia into Kuala Lumpur um, for my first overseas corporate gig and that was, um, that was also fantastic, a fantastic experience. I had a wonderful boss at the time um, who very much led uh, with his heart and with empathy um, and took me under his wing and um, together we built the operations for that agency across the whole of the Asia-Pacific region and, you know, this is going back sort of, gosh, 
15, 14 years ago now. So again, we, we didn't have the privilege of, um, of digital assets to help travel and business and, um, and kind of cross-border collaboration. And, um, you know, we were in rooms with translators all the time. We were in the boondocks of tier two, three, four cities in India and China. And this is where my um, passion, I guess, for rural marketing, for traditional trade, mum and pup retailing in these emerging markets um, was really born. So I was traveling to, um, to Japan, to China and to India, visiting these rural markets to really understand the role of brands in these environments, the role of these brands with, with the um, bottom of pyramid consumers and, um, and with the rural communities. Um, so it was a wonderful platform to, um, to spring my career in rural marketing from. So building brands involves a lot of storytelling. You know, that experience from, from in those rural areas and, and seeing how those small little businesses and their brands evolved, what do you think are, are the most important components of a brand? Mm. Um, so the most important component of a brand in, in those communities is really about um, understanding the engagement that an individual has with the brand from the moment that there is a trigger or a need for it to the moment that they interact with it or purchase it to the moment that they consume it. Now, um, we've worked with a lot of FMCG brands in, in this space and uh, or consumer, consumer goods brands. Um, and we're also working with a lot of digital platforms in this space now as it's evolved. And um, I think, I think it's, um, it's easier to start answering that question with what brands have failed to do in this space. And it's really about understanding that um, pivotal moment of when an individual first interacts with your product. And chances are that that interaction um, will be through a friend um, or through a peer or a family member. But most of the time, it's actually at the retail point, at the trade point in itself. And you know, when I lived in Cambodia or when I've done these field visits to these rural markets to understand trade and understand the sales channel, the role that these merchants, these little individual retailers have in the lives of their communities, in these rural communities, is quite profound. Um, these these individual, these store owners are often beacons of the community Um they are the ones who are choosing in which brands to stock in their stores. So often um, the community comes in and they're not asking for products or services even by brand. Um, it's, it's the retailer who is the solely influential individual in which brand that they are choosing to provide to, that, um, to their customer. So for us, it's about understanding that very precious um, moment, that pivotal moment of, um, of when a brand or a product gets put into that individual's hand. So we find that unlike, uh, unlike modern markets and unlike modern retailing for the traditional trade and for the emerging markets, we find that the role of the trader plays a lot heavier in the choice um, and the use of brands than the actual consumer does. And um, when we look at marketing spends and we look at marketing spends of our biggest clients as well, so much of it is still very much consumer focused. Um, and so we're moving a lot more in these rural markets and in these emerging markets into understanding the role of that merchant, understanding the role of that store owner. So if we now transform that into, say, a big global company and, and our online digital mm. kind of brands... It, is it the same or is there a different component that, you know, really allow our brand to succeed? It's a really good question because um, so where I've come from and everything that I do, even with the very traditional creative agencies that I've worked for, I've always specialised in uh, retail, shopper and trade marketing. And just recently I was giving a talk on retailing of yesteryear and how these digital platforms and the way that they're transforming and changing the way that we shop and the way that we engage with brands. What they're really doing in some respects is taking us back to that um, retail experience of yesteryear and from you know an Australian context, if we think about the local corner store or the, the local milk bar, um, 
you know, we would enter that environment and we would know the store owner by name. They would certainly know us by name. I would run in there with my 20 cents to buy a mixed bag of lollies and, and he would ask about my mum and my sister and my father and he knew where I went to school and um, he knew what products I would like. And, you know, arguably um, he would know that the lady two doors down would be in every Wednesday morning for her her litre of milk and if he was running low, he'd pop one away for her and save it for her. And if, if we think about these kind of um, personalisation and personalised experiences um, that we had with retailing and shopping back in the day and we think about what we're trying to achieve on a much more prolific um, platform and a much more prolific version of via digital, it's really the same thing. You know, um, digital engagement with brands now is all about using data to make sure that a message, a product, a service, a creative, whatever it is, is delivered in a personal way and delivered to the right individual at the right time to form relationships, to form bonds um, and to, to form loyalty. Um, so I think that there's something in this territory of, of we're really trying to use digital platforms to replicate that retelling of yesteryear. You've brought back some uh, wonderful memories and uh, emotions from when I was a little, a little child and <laughs> around which shops I would love to go to and which ones I'd try and avoid just based on that personal interaction with, as you say, the, the owner of that business. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's really, it's really fascinating. And I think going back to this kind of idea of the rural markets and, and you know, this, this um, sentiment of targeting the next billion users, they're very good at doing that. You know, these retailers are the beacons of the community and then some. These individuals don't have access to um, as much education, medical care, advice, guidance, support. And these retailers are often acting as um, therapists, pharmacists. Um, often everything's purchased on consignment, so they're acting as bank loan merchants as well. So um, so I think, you know, it, it's even um, more prolific in those those rural markets for those retailers than what we would have experienced in those little independent shops when we were kids. I can, I can really feel the passion in your voice here. So can you share with us a real-life example of one of your favourite brand stories? Yes, it's a, it's a good question. And I think in, in the same vein of, of kind of um, talking about rural markets and the next billion users, um, we, uh, in my current role, we have a fantastic client, a healthcare client, um, and a very, a very prominent global brand, um, that we work on and we manage all of their communications at any touch points at retail, whether that is in the rural markets or on e-commerce platforms or in the modern trade environments that we're more used to in, in Australia, for example. Um, and we are working with that brand at the moment, um, on a big global pilot project targeting the next billion users um, in India. And it's working with the traditional traders, the merchants, to really upskill them to advocate um, not only the brand, but advocate health benefits to their shoppers. Um, so I mentioned earlier that these merchants of these traditional trade outlets wear so many hats. And, um, and what we're finding is that they're not necessarily empowered to provide healthcare or health-related information or advice to their shoppers. In India, particularly, um, herbal Ayurvedic treatments are obviously uh, really popular. Um, and in these rural markets, they tend to be the go-to for, um, for health-related treatments. And so we have an um, incredible program where we're using mobile phone, um, both through 2G and 3G, 4G technologies, understanding that everybody has a cell, but not everybody is connected. So we have um, a host of analog and digital approaches to uh, liaising with corresponding with and empowering these traders to really upskill them to help support their communities um, through healthcare related issues. And that could be anything from informing them when there is an outbreak of influenza um, in their community and how to be prepared and how to prepare the community accordingly. So what I really love about this is using the power of a sales channel and the power of a beacon of the community, which happens to be a retailer, for the benefit of that wider community and that, that, that wider village. Um, 
and everybody loves to feel knowledgeable about something. And what we found with these individuals, with these store owners, is um, they're the forgotten ones in, in the sales channel. You know, our marketers spend so much time um, working and navigating the nuances of wholesalers and distributors and major modern marketing um, retail corporations. Um, when in actual fact in this part of the world, and, and, and certainly the same can be said for Latin America, Eastern Europe, the Middle East, um, the majority of consumer goods are pushed through these traditional trade outlets and um, brands have failed to really build that relationship with these traditional traders for multiple reasons. It's, it's incredibly fragmented and it's very hard to reach these individuals. But thankfully now with these digital technologies and the fact that these individuals are connected, we're able to start educating them and we're finding that the responsiveness is just overwhelming. They're, they're so thrilled um, to be considered as a business individual. They're so thrilled that a brand would take the time to want to work with them, to upskill them, to help them to become a better business man or woman. Um, and so for me, I feel like we're at this really exciting point of traditional trade, of rural marketing, of empowering these individuals, of propelling their businesses forward, and especially of helping them to compete in a world where, you know, um, globalization and, and, and the proliferation of these global retail giants that are starting to trickle into these communities. We're at this intersection where we're able to really help these merchants to, um, to grow their business, to play a larger role, to increase loyalty, and to, to future-proof their, their companies that are you know, often these businesses are a third, fourth, fifth generation through a family. Um, so, so that's a really exciting time for me. Yes, and um, it's, it's great to see that kind of ecosystem, how it's evolving and working there to ensure they're continually upskilling people and allowing their brands to really grow through those you know, partnerships and I suppose in a certain way. Yeah, absolutely. So let's... Let's take you now into your current role. So in 2017, you were appointed as a Managing Director Singapore of Geometry Global. Mm. And this year, you also became the Director of Global Accounts APAC. Can you enlighten mm. our listeners on what Geometry Global is? And what is the special mm. ingredient that has led it to being the world's largest and most international brand experience and activation agency in such a short period of time? Yeah, it was it was a very short period of time. Geometry's rise to to um, where it is now. So our business is um, is five and a half years old, and we are the result of a merger between a host of um, a host of specialist discipline agencies that sit within our mother company. So our company is um, is part of the WPP network. Um, the WPP network is also the world's largest network of marketing and communications agencies and some of the most well-known and um, uh, traditional creative advertising agencies as well. So about five and a half years ago, um, a host of these specialist discipline agencies were all merged together. And it was really, um, at the time it was identified that everybody was trying to play across so many different um, silos or channels of marketing and in fact, we needed to go back to being, <clears throat> excuse me, specialists in our, our own field and our own area. Um, shopper marketing and retail marketing was really gaining in traction. The importance of understanding um, a brand and the way that it performs in a retail environment and through a sales channel um, was becoming uh, paramount in the, in the marketing mix. And we were seeing that clients were also investing a lot more into this space. So the traditional creative agencies um, and, and all of the digital agencies were really trying to get a foot in. So at that time, it was decided it would be better to just create a powerhouse of um, brand activation agencies and specialists with this common thread of retail and, and understanding um, how people buy and, and um, the triggers that um, propel individuals to purchase products or services. Um, so we, with that, we, we had instant scale, um, but obviously with any, like with any merger or acquisition, you know, it took a while for the dust to settle and for geometry to have a really aligned global purpose and a way forward. Um, and we very much got there. And I, I, I think the real privilege um, of being part of an agency that's part of such a, a big network like WPP is 
we get to engage with and play um, with all of our cousins across all of the other agencies. And I often liken geometry to sort of um, the little the little baby sister. We sort of don't really have any competition in the network. We play really nicely with everyone. We're we're small and nimble in most of our markets in comparison to our cousins. Um, and so um, we're able to strip out a lot of the bureaucracy that comes with working in this industry. Um, so it's a um, it's a young company. Um, I I joined uh, when I had a, a six month old baby, and I was approached about my current role actually um, when my my second child was only four or five weeks old, um, and my my now boss, um, who was somebody that I had worked with many years prior. Um, at the time approached me, I was on maternity leave. Um, I was in a fantastic role that I really loved with a consultancy that offered me um, a lot of flexibility and a lot of time to be with my kids. So it was kind of crazy to to have even considered moving into um, a corporate agency role and especially one that is part of a network that um, historically has has not had the, the most positive feedback um, or the most um, positive perception in terms of um, people, people management, workplace culture. Um, but I am a huge believer in there's there's no such thing as making a, a, a bad a good deal, sorry, with a bad person. Um, so um, I really value and appreciate my boss um, who I work for now, who's our regional CEO. Um, and I really believed in her when she approached me when I had this little baby in my arms. And so um, I believed in her vision for the business and I believed in geometry as a, as a company. I'd sort of looked enviably from the sidelines for many years prior with my passion for retail and shopper marketing. Um, so, so I took a leap of faith um, and uh, it was one of the best, best career decisions that I've made. Okay, so before we start delving into kind of that that looking after people and that wellness aspect inside the organization i, I just want to ask one question on the mm. website it talks about creating experiences that connect brands and peoples at moments that matter mm. how does your team determine what those moments are mm. it's a really good question um and this is definitely something that differentiates us um for us, moments that matter, it's really about understanding that, um, you know, the, an individual's journey to engage with a brand or a service, um, every agency will talk about this in a, in a different way and have their own model, whether it's a, a path to purchase. For us, we call it the purchase decision journey. Others will call it a purchase decision tree. So whatever whatever that, that, um, that process is that an agency or a brand uses, it's really about understanding the steps, the process, the path in which an individual comes to engage with your brand, your product or your service, to consume it, um, and then what happens afterwards and how do we re-engage, how do we build loyalty. For us, it's about looking at that purchase decision journey and identifying that not all moments are created equal. And we're unapologetic about choosing which moments are the pivotal moments. So the example that I gave earlier when we're talking about talking about rural markets and talking about the interaction at which an individual would come into contact with your brand for the first time, the pivotal moment there is often when a trader is on his motorbike and he's driven to the local wholesaler and stocked his motorbike with goods. The pivotal moment there is which goods and which brands he chooses to pop on his bike to drive back to his store from a much more modern and um, I guess uh, uh, real life for, for our part of the world example, you know, that pivotal moment might be um, the point in which a trigger to search for a product or service is born. We do a lot um, in the pharmaceutical space. We do a lot with experts. Um, so thinking about, you know, pharmacists, pharmacist recommendations, doctors, etc. Um, so, you know, those pivotal moments are not necessarily at a, at a shelf in store. Um, those pivotal moments are not necessarily on a digital platform. Um, so for us, it's just about understanding which ones are going to be key and then how do we play in that space. And 
long gone are the days of, of kind of retail and shopper marketing and brand building where we, we take a kind of key visual from a television campaign and we whack it across as many different mediums and medias as possible. Right now, what we're seeing is um, engagement with individuals, engagement with consumers can really start and be born from absolutely anywhere. Um, and that, that could be um, on a digital platform. It, it could be physically at a store or it could be, as I said earlier, um, much further up the, the value chain and much further up the sales channel chain. Excellent. So let's make a sale change here and tack in a slightly different direction. In an industry which is extremely fast-paced, demanding and highly competitive, how do you ensure that you and your team are in a high-performing frame of mind and have the energy to deliver excellence every day? Yeah, it's, um, it's not surprising that the, um, that the perception of our industry is, is that it's, it's fast-paced. It's pretty brutal historically. Um, I think the the advertising and marketing agency was uh, an incredibly desirable place to work over the last 30 years. Um, I think that this almost lulled us into this sense of security um, where we really started to fail our people and we really started to fail this premise of um, a healthy work environment, of a healthy work culture and certainly of work-life balance. And you know, the irony is is that we're a creative industry and our creative product is what we, we sell and without the best people and without nurturing that creativity, we, we have no product, we have nothing left. So um, so for me, as I said, being approached when I had a tiny baby in my arms to move into a corporate marketing agency was a massive leap of faith and most people thought that I was, that I was crazy at the time and that it would compromise um, uh, this mental wellness that I was enjoying um, in my life at that point. And, and actually, I think um, what I did was come, come into certainly leading the Singapore team and the Singapore agency. I came into an environment where people were, um, were very much all of, the, um, all of those things that I mentioned earlier and all of the perceptions and the preconceived notion that we have of people in ad agencies. They, they were um, overworked. They were stressed. Um, we were chasing our tails. We were firefighting. Um, it's incredibly fast paced, as you said. And so for me, it was about taking stock of, um, of what had happened previously, of the legacy of the business, um, of spending time with our people. But I think the biggest um, impact and change that I was able to instill on the agency was that, and it was something that I'd never done in any of my previous roles, is that I had come in with a baby at home and so I had come in unapologetically adamant that my priority was my children. My priority was my family and certainly my baby. And, um, and that the, the, the agency was not. And um, as however brutal it sounds, my people that I worked with were also not. And I think that, I think that everyone responded really, um, really well to that. I think it was a, a, a refreshing approach. It almost gave people to, permission to not careless, but permission to put things into perspective a little bit more. And so I've really, um, I think I think being a, a parent and leading a team of individuals really helps you to, um, to put those things into perspective. And leading by example, for me, it, was, it wasn't just about saying we're going to change workplace culture here, we're going to have a better work-life balance, I'm going to put processes in place to make sure that that happens. I needed people to come with me on the journey and so I led by example I walk out of my office every day between five and six o'clock and I say I'm leaving now to go home and bath my children and put them to bed if I need to be I'll be back online later um, some days I very publicly announce that I'm leaving my laptop here and I'm not taking it home tonight and you know it's <laughs> met with cheers and applause from my team and you know so I just think it's it's about leading by example for that and it is incredibly stressful and my, my more junior people get very overwhelmed with the pressure and the client demands and I'm so um, pleased that I'm able to remind them that um, the, the role of their work and the role of our agency in, in the big world and, um, you know, the reality is, is that we are helping people to engage with brands um, and when we think about what's going on, Outside of that, um, it's pretty insignificant. And so I try to just 
help everybody to maintain that perspective when times get tough. And I think it helps us to um, care a lot more when we're in the moment. And um, for the past 12 months, my team has just been outperforming all expectations. Um, I'm so lucky that they came along with me for this ride. And I'm so lucky that I had partners in the agency who um, who were really aligned with my vision. I think where I've struggled in the past in, in businesses or in agencies and even with clients is when, when our vision is not aligned. And we have this, um, we just have this beautiful dance going at the moment where we're winning so much business. We're, we're almost winning too much. We're, that, that's another challenge that we're trying to overcome is how we can be a bit more focused and streamlined. But, um, but we're, we're just in this wonderful flow. Um, our people are good. Our people are great. We're constantly looking at ways to evolve. Um, I think our new kind of ethos for the year ahead, last year it was just all about finding the balance, finding our headspace, having a much healthier working environment. Um, and this year our ethos is going to be all about really this this idea of, um, of always being in test mode, this idea of always being in beta mode, this idea of trying things new, of giving everybody in, in the agency permission to fail. Um, I think that as an industry, we have, um, we have this legacy of bureaucracy, of process, of protocol <clears throat> behind us. And we, um, what we're seeing now is, you know, our competition isn't each other anymore. Our competitions are, are these wonderful startups, these wonderful entrepreneurial businesses that, um, are fast and agile and nimble and, um, and in order for us to stay relevant and in order for us to offer the best service to our clients, we need to kind of follow suit. And so um, it's an exciting time for us and our transformation into that space as well. Excellent. What a great success story. Has that success of your team transferred into changing the way other geometry global teams operate? Mm. It's such a good question. We were in... Um, we were in Vietnam a couple of weeks ago, actually, at our regional leadership conference. So that's basically all of the MDs and CEOs from all the markets around APAC. And, um, and you know, I was invited to sort of share a little bit about what we're doing with our people. And it, look, it's always a fine line, Craig, because in Singapore, I have the privilege of having um, a smaller team than a lot of the other markets. So our Malaysia operations, our Japan operations, our China and India operations are absolutely mammoth. I mean, they are 10, 20 times the size of my operation here in Singapore. So, um, you know, it's fraught with a whole bunch of different and very complex challenges that I don't necessarily need to face in Singapore. So, you know, I think there's something to be said for, um, for being smaller. It allows me to trial and test a bit more. But the, the beauty of that and um, is that my colleagues, who run these really huge operations in the other markets um, are constantly inviting me to share and constantly asking um, for for advice and hints and tips. We uh, in Singapore started an initiative um, when I first joined, actually, so about a year and a half ago now, called Geometreats. Um, and Geometreats was just a quick way to to quickly start instilling. Um, some behavior change within our people and to give back to our people. You know, the reality is is that I am um, part of a, a corporate. I'm part of a global conglomerate. Um, there are restrictions in what I can do for my people, but there's nothing um, to say that I can't offer um, independent uh, uh, benefits to, to my people through things like um, work from home days. So geometry. Uh, has a whole bunch of different treats that we offer and, and we, we offer a work from home day once a month and, you know, I don't care if you're at the hairdressers or in the mall as long as, you know, you are available if we need to, to find you. So people can use that as parental leave or for carers leave or to sneak out on an earlier flight if they're travelling away. I really don't mind. Um, so that's open to everyone in the business. We also have um, an eye care day, so we encourage everybody to participate in um, in in opportunities for the community. So we we have a soup kitchen that we're affiliated with, and we encourage people to participate in um, volunteering their time there or any any place any NGO or place of their choice. And we'll give you a day off work to do that. Um, we shut up shop 
on the first Friday at four o'clock of every month. It's called FFF. Um, and so it's at four o'clock on the first Friday of the month, it literally lights out and everyone, everyone heads off. That's sort of a throwback to my days of working in agencies in Australia in the summer. Um, so these are just a few of the examples of these geometries that we developed out of Singapore and, um, and we've, we've socialized those on our social platforms on our Instagram and, um, we've received emails from MDs and CEOs from all over the world from Geometry asking for um, the framework, the um, feedback, the insights, the learnings, the artwork, and it's now gone into our global HQ, which is in London. It's going into the other markets. And what's what's interesting about that is um, the the email that I usually receive is, we've seen Geometry, it looks fantastic. Could you please send us? Um, the the project information and I have none. Um, we don't have a kind of toolkit. We don't have a project overview. We just sat in a room. Um, we created it. My creative director went went away and beautifully visualised it, and then we just started it. And so this is always my advice to my peers that are running these geometry offices in the other markets: is just start it, just try it. We don't need regional or global approvals to offer these kind of incentives to our people. I can see a book in the making here, Geometreats. Um, <laughs> so I'm curious to know how your team would describe your leadership style. You know, what do you think they would say? Oh, gosh, I hate to think. I don't know. Um, I do know a little bit. So I have a fantastic creative partner um, who I run the Singapore operations with, and, and he was with me in Vietnam recently at the leadership conference I mentioned. And we did this fantastic exercise. We, we had some facilitators come in and run some sessions for our team, which was just wonderful. And, uh, and we did this exercise that was, um, that was all about listening and all about um, the, the learnings, I guess, that came out of it was all about stopping, processing, developing a game plan before jumping in headfirst. And I failed it so spectacularly and... It was so indicative of the way that I jump at projects or at business in that it's usually two feet first, it's fast. And it was a wonderful lesson for me to, um, to take, stop, take stock, to slow down, to assess the situation first, to allow myself time to course correct as well. And my creative partner who was there just thought the whole thing was hilarious because um, he, he, just, he just nodded and smiled and he was like, that's you, that's how, that's how you run it. You just kind of do, do, do. And we share this philosophy actually of, um, of just doing it first and asking for forgiveness if we've broken the rules later. And it serves us well, but I do think that, um, yeah, there's an opportunity for us to, to start being a little bit more measured. <laughs> so I, I think my team would share that sentiment. Um, I, I don't have time to um, I don't have time to kind of sit around and in in the agency. I don't want to be chained to my desk when I'm there. I want to be as efficient as possible. And I um, sometimes that can be misconstrued, I guess, as um, as being really fast um, and and not making enough time for people. And that's definitely something that I'm working on. I think that that my team would. See that um, when I am there, when I am in the office, it's go go go, and um, it's the most efficient use of my time as possible. And I think if you were to ask them what they would like me to do better, it would probably be to slow down a bit more and to give them a bit more time, which is something I'm working on. <laughs> so we all know smart people have great answers, but the best people have great questions. When was the last mm -hmm. time you did something for the first time? This, this, doing this podcast, I was, um, I've been feeling really nervous about it, to be honest, Craig. It's uh, the first time that I've, um, that I've sort of been interviewed in this kind of forum. And you mentioned earlier when we first started talking, I'm a very kinesthetic person. I'm very tactile. Um, I really love nothing more than being on a panel. I love question and answers. I love, um, speaking engagements. Um, but, but doing it via this, um, I don't know, it was really um, foreign to me and it felt a bit uncomfortable to begin with. So I would say this is the first time I've, I've done a, a podcast interview and it's, it's been great. But um, in addition to that, look, I try, I try to do new things all the time and take myself 
out of my comfort zone and looking to shake things up. And as I mentioned earlier, I think that's why I used to move country a lot or change change roles and change careers and and jump first head in uh, head first sorry into having a baby and having another baby. And um, but I I think you know now every day is is the first time um, being a mother. My children, you know, the journey of raising tiny humans. Um, my children are completely contradictory and unfixed from one day to the next so it's you never know what you're going to get um and then also you know in that vein um my work is incredibly diverse my team are incredibly diverse and they're from all parts of the world um and so that that means that working with a unique set of individuals and characters there's always something new and always something new for me to learn and um and on the same vein as that also our incredibly large and diverse portfolio of clients and brands you know I had this day recently, um, I got home and asked my, my husband how his day was and, and he's a forester. So his days are, are usually fairly similar from one to the next. And and I said to him, goodness, I raced from one meeting at an international school to another meeting to our client who is um, in dynamite and blasting solutions to then our other client who is working on um, in the medical field and working on HIV medication. And I was just like, I feel like my brain's going to explode. And so I have these days where I just get to bounce from these um, incredibly different and interesting meetings, conversations. And so that's always new. Beautiful. Well, you've done really well with the podcast today. So you, you learn fast. What is the one question that you would love to solve? This is just such a big one. And, you know, I'd love to say something along the lines of, you know, I'd really love to know what the unified theory on everything is or how the universe came to be or is there existence of life outside our planet. But, you know, a bit closer to home and probably a bit more relevant. And if I, I had that one opportunity, I think it would be something around what make, makes people tick, something around the psychology of, of individuals, some kind of insight um, to help me comprehend people's innate responses to um, to situations and to engagements. And I, I have this, this um, passion to learn more about psychology and, um, and certainly from an organizational psychology perspective. And so I want to start exploring that a little bit more. So it's, it's really top of mind, this, this desire of, of wanting to um, understand individuals, their responses to things. And I think it's born somewhere from this desire I have a wanting to people please, which is a challenge and definitely something I've been working on over over the years. And um, you know, we're moving into this era of looking inwards and looking looking after our own self and our own our own well being. And this definitely feels like the right way forward. Um, but but at the same time, I'm really interested in in understanding that whole piece around um, people, my social circle. I'm so lucky that I have this. Intensing, intensely compelling group of women in my life, um, as well as great colleagues, my kids, my wonderful husband, and I, I would love to understand more around the psychology of of their minds and their decisions and um, their life in their lives. Yeah. Okay. So, who has had the who has left the greatest impression and had the most impact on your career, and why? It's really hard to pinpoint one individual, but I, I probably have two. And um, and the first um, would be uh, an individual that I worked with when I was with a very big, well-known global agency about 10 years ago now. Um, she was a remarkable woman. She was an incredibly senior position at the time, the only woman um, in the industry, really, at the level of in which she was in. And um, I admired her tremendously. And she gave me some advice that I didn't really understand at the time I was young and probably a bit ignorant and overconfident but it, it's really stayed with me and it means so much now um, she said to me along the lines of to not ever feel apologetic for being a woman and for being feminine and she said gone are the days in which you needed to behave like a man to succeed and really she encouraged me to use my femininity my intuition um, the empathy that I have um, to drive me in my career and I've really tried to apply that in my leadership style um, and it, it's something that it's there's something about bringing a sort of 
softness to my leadership style, style and certainly that empathy. And I, I really try to lead with my heart and my head first and then with all the leadership coaching and training that I've been lucky, lucky enough to have um, thereafter. Excellent. So very fascinating insight into your life so far. So if, how can people learn more about what you do? And if people want to connect with you, what is the best way to do that? Sure. So um, people can find out more about our business, Geometry at Geometry.com. Um, and I'm quite active on LinkedIn. So individuals can certainly reach out to me. I would encourage them to um, at my LinkedIn profile, which is Jane Marie Perry. Excellent. Well, Jane, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I've thoroughly enjoyed sort of going on that journey from your childhood where you had that that juxtaposition of being a ballet dancer versus being on a, a motorbike and, and exploring to sort of figuring out that, that you like to be hands-on and explore things rather than be in a structured position of, of learning. Uh, you, you have evolved your career so well and that creative aspect, and I love how you are so passionate and certain around how branding works and what you want to see uh, from a advertising or a brand perspective and from your team. What inspired me the most though is the way that you have transformed the company from geometric or uh, and, and in the way that you look at health and wellness of the people in there. I think that's really really enlightening and is a breath of fresh air and it's great to see that especially in that industry of the advertising agency and marketing where it can be very full-on and it's go 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 and there's no let up so i really applaud you for doing that i really like the quote there that you talked about with the person who had that great impact on you around the femininity aspect mm. and i think that's important you have to be true to who you are and who you are as a person mm. and that really shines through that genuine authenticity of a person is so important and it's great to see that females can feel empowered now to to not try and be a man in business you know just be yourself because that's yeah. what we're looking for we're looking for those human yeah. characteristics so thank you very much for a wonderful wonderful conversation and i look forward to seeing how your future uh, your career and the future continues to grow and you empower more people thank you so much craig it's been such a pleasure to speak with you Today's Active CEO Wellness Tip is all about day-to-day -day productivity. Andrew Barnes, founder of Perpetual Guardian, trialed the four-day workweek in New Zealand while still playing employees for five days. It was an astounding success with drastic improvements in work-life balance, engagement, and lower stress levels. It all started with trying to figure out a way to increase employees' work-life balance, while also increasing day-to-day -day productivity. If we can find a way in our workplace to ensure that there's little time to procrastinate and that people are actually focused on the task at hand while they're there, we're then going to get greater productivity. So what Andrew found was that by giving them more time outside of work, it meant when they were in work, they were a lot more productive and they ensured that they were more efficient and more effective with their time. And they, and they shortened their meetings as well. If I believe correctly, they were shortening them from one hour meetings become half an hour meetings. So it was making sure that there was an absolute purpose to every single meeting and every single thing they did. My challenge to you is to figure out ways that you can be both more productive in the way you work, improve your work-life balance, and look at ways that you can lower stress levels. It may not be the four-day work week, but how can you improve your day-to-day -day productivity and live the life that you really want to? What a fascinating conversation there today with Jane Perry from Geometry Global. Just some wonderful insights into the brand world and about how you create those brands around moments and ideas and really I like that they got really local and down to that rural aspect where they're talking about the 
the shop owner being the centerpiece of the brand and the reason why people are attracted to those brands. Really, really powerful. She's a great example that you don't need all the university studies in the world. You don't need those documents to be able to prove that you can be a leader and that you can shine through. She's obviously fantastic at being kinesthetic and a tactile learner and she's learned on the go and been able to really um, create inspiring stories and really gel and connect the team together. She's got a wonderful way of bringing health and wellness into a really fast paced and dynamic industry. And she can obviously see the benefits there and success that is bringing. And, and now you're seeing that transform throughout the teams around the world within geometry. And you know, I think she's on to something really special. It's great to see that she's had a huge impact on the people that have surrounded her. And she's got some great questions there she'd love to solve in the future. So this is it for today's podcast. If you loved it, feel free to share it and get people to sign up so that and subscribe to the show whether you're using iTunes or another platform so that you can make sure that you get every single conversation straight to your phone or straight to your device so that you can listen to it and not miss a single beat. That's the Active CEO podcast with the ordinary don't belong. Join the Active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to Perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to Perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.